Well, good morning. So good to see everybody here today, and uh, we are always glad to be together on the Lord's Day to celebrate His goodness, His love, His mercy and grace. And so uh, we are excited that you're here. I want to give a special welcome to those of you that may be worshiping with us here for the first time or maybe the first time in person. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, Please be sure to stop by uh, the hub there uh, in the back after the service. We'd love to chat with you and uh, answer any questions that you might have. Summer is almost over. Fall is almost here, and we're really excited because in a few weeks, we're going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of 1 Peter that I think you will find uh, incredibly encouraging, and, um, and I can't wait for us to sink our teeth into it. If you're not uh, in a life group yet, uh, this is a great time to think about getting plugged into one so that uh, you can get the most out of our time in the book of 1 Peter. A few years ago, uh, the leadership of New Life identified uh, six distinctives that we highly value as a church, and we call them core values. Um, They are core because they're at the heart of who we are uh, as a church. And uh, when, we, when we think about values, um, these are the things that are most important to us. They're not the only things that are important to us, but they're the things that we would regard as most important to us. And last week, uh, Greg uh, talked about biblical community and kicked off this mini-series on our core values. And he shared with us a good working definition uh, of core values as well as the importance of them. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to actually expound a little bit more on uh, core values as well uh, as introduce the second one that we want to share with you in this mini-series. We're going to be sharing three in total. Uh, Eric will be speaking next week on godly servant leadership. But I think it is, is it would be wise for us to at least ask the question, because some of you are no doubt thinking it if you've not asked it, but why a series on core values? It's real simple. Everybody has them. Whether individuals or organizations, we all hold to a set of core values that we're either conscious of or not conscious of. And uh, the, the reality is that we value what is most important to us. And we act in accordance with what we value. So let me see if I can illustrate this for you. If you value something you own you will take good care of it. If you deeply value your spouse, you will be faithful to him or her. Or put another way, if you deeply value loyalty and faithfulness, you will not be disloyal or unfaithful. If you deeply value honesty and integrity, you will tell the truth. You won't cheat on tests or your taxes. And if you deeply value your health, you will exercise, eat right, and get enough sleep. And you can tell just by looking at me, this is not a core value that I deeply value. 
I, I'd like to say that I do, but, you know, reality uh, says otherwise. Simply put, core values are deeply held beliefs that determine behavior. And it's no different in the church. I mean, consider these three core values, and I'll start with the one that Greg introduced us to last week. If we deeply value biblical community, we will not live in isolation. We, we won't relegate ourselves only to the Sunday morning gathering, but we will find a way to connect with God's people in life-changing community. If we deeply value biblical authority, we will obey God's word. And if we deeply value intimacy with God, then we will do everything that we can in order to cultivate our relationship with God. We'll spend time in prayer. We'll be in the word. We will be with God's people, but we will do everything we can. We'll work on spiritual disciplines, including fasting. Our core values are more than just words on paper. They are the constant, passionate, biblical core beliefs that drive our ministry. Our core values are the essence of who we are. And together with our mission and our vision, our core values help make up what we would call our spiritual DNA. It's what sets us apart from other churches. And, and our core values act like rails um, to, to keep us safe to keep us uh, guided in the right direction, and it helps us to know what we are to do and not do as a church. So this morning, I want to look at another one of our core values, and that is transformative grace. And the way that we describe this core value on our website is that we are deeply committed to living in and under the transforming grace of God Knowing God accepts us by a sheer act of grace, we welcome and extend his grace to others regardless of where they are on their spiritual journey. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I'm going to really focus in on that first sentence and really just those two words, transforming grace. But before we begin, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us and for this opportunity to worship you. Holy Spirit, we pray that as we look at your word that you will just illuminate our minds, help us to understand what you are saying. And, and Father, once we have that understanding, that Lord, that we would bring our lives into conformity with your word, that we would obey. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts as we see the power of transforming grace here this morning. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. The Christian thinker and philosopher, uh, Dallas uh, Willard, um, said this about grace. He said, it is God's doing in us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves or what we could not do ourselves. But then he goes on and he adds this statement, and I've been mulling it over this week. Saints burn far more grace than sinners ever could. They burn it in a way that a jet burns fuel. 
And I think what, what Willard was getting at is, is that God's grace is needed not just for the sinner to be saved, but for the sinner to become like Christ. That it's, it's, you know, we don't need grace at one particular point in our, in our life, but we need grace throughout our life in order for us to become more like Christ. Now, the New Testament word uh, that we translate grace comes from the Greek word charis, which means favor or kindness or uh, goodwill or gift. And it appears 148 times in the New Testament. And most often it is translated as grace. Simply put, it is God's undeserved kindness and unmerited favor. And one of the ways that I like to, to help people understand what grace is is by understanding what a couple of other words mean, justice and mercy. Justice can be defined as getting what you deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you deserve. Grace takes it a step further in that God gives us what we do not deserve. Most of us are familiar with the term saved by grace. And, and by that, we, we simply mean that we are saved from our sins, not as a result of our good works or our, our religiosity, but we are saved by God's unmerited favor, his undeserved kindness. He has given to us eternal life as a gift. A free gift is what the scripture says. And it's based in the character of God himself. It's not because we're so lovable. But God chooses to lavish his, his favor, his goodwill, his blessings on us in salvation through the cross of Christ. Paul gives us a very clear picture of this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He writes there, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So we're familiar with the phrase, saved by grace. Not as many people are familiar with the phrase, kept by by grace. There are many people who believe that they're saved by grace, but they fail to understand that they are kept by that very same grace in Christ. Somehow they think that, okay, it, God got the ball rolling. Jesus came. He died on the cross for my sins. I prayed. I received Christ. I'm saved. Now it's up to me to stay saved. So I got to be a really good person I've got to do all the things that God tells me I, I need to do in order to stay in God's good graces. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Paul wrote to the, Galatia, the, the Galatian church to correct this false thinking. And he wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? 
Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? You see, the Galatian people started out well, but they fell into the trap of performance. And it's so easy to do. And folks, let me, let me tell you, after 21 years being raised in a particular denomination, at, at 59 years of age, I still wrestle with that. There are some things that are so deeply ingrained in me. And I think a lot of it stems from the fact that I grew up in a home where I, I felt like I had to perform to earn my father's love. And it's so easy to ascribe that to God. And so grace, when I first learned of it, first of all, it was a foreign concept, but then when I finally grasped it, I realized that I had to keep coming back to it all the time because my natural bent is to fall into that performance trap or that performance mentality. We cannot maintain our relationship with God by our works any more than our works enabled us to enter into a relationship with him. We can no more keep ourselves saved by our works than our works save us. I want you to imagine for a moment a, a drowning man in the ocean or in a lake, and he's drowning. There's nobody around him. There's no lifeguards, no lifeboat, no raft. But this guy's intent on saving himself, so he takes one hand, he reaches over, he grabs himself by the hair, and he pulls himself out of the water. Can you see that? Well, you, you probably can, but you know that would never happen because a drowning man can't do that. It would be equally ridiculous to think that once he does that, he can then start you know, kicking his way all the way back to the beach. We can't save ourselves, and we can't keep ourselves saved and, and bring us to safety. It is all by the grace of God. That same grace that saved us also keeps us. But there is something else that the grace of God does, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. God's grace transforms us. The Apostle Paul gives us a great picture of that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about his own conversion. He says in uh, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, by Paul's own account, he was a blasphemous, violent, insolent man. But he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. He was touched by the grace of God. And that grace not only saved him, but it enabled him to work harder than all the other apostles. Paul's life was completely changed. And that's what he meant when he said that God's grace was not in vain. He went from being a persecutor of Jesus and the church to a bold proclaimer of the gospel. 
He believed that God's grace transforms because he saw what it did in his own life. And he tells us the same thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. And so we can see the transforming power of God in many ways as we look to the scriptures. But this morning, I just want to share six things with you. I'll try to move them along as quickly as possible. These, these aren't the only things that God's grace does. It's not the only way he transforms us, but these things stood out to me. And the very first one is that God's grace sets you free. And it does so in marvelous ways. And I think one of the best pictures that we have in the New Testament of this is the story of the adulterous woman. If you remember that story, Jesus had been in the temple teaching, and the Pharisees seeking to entrap him bring a woman to him who was caught in adultery and, and threw her down there at, at Jesus' feet. And then they, they come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus! This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the very act. The, the, the law says that she ought to be stoned. What do you say? Well, the, the truth is, if you look at the law, it's not just that the woman was to be stoned, but the man was to be stoned too, which kind of led a lot of scholars to think that maybe she was fooling around with a Pharisee. We don't know. But there she was before Jesus... And, and Jesus then, you know, he, he kneels down or he's, you know, and he starts drawing in the sand, doodling in the sand. I don't know what he was doing, and, but he, he starts writing in the sand. And then, you know, he's, he stands up and he looks at them and he says something like this. He says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the one to cast the first stone. And then he knelt back down again, and he started drawing in the sand again. And the Bible says that, that they all began to leave one by one, beginning with the oldest to the youngest. And then Jesus stood up, took the woman, looked at her, and said, where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord, then neither do I condemn you. Can you imagine what she must have felt like in that moment? What she felt like as she was being dragged before Jesus to, to what must have appeared as certain death. And then all of a sudden, things radically change. Everything takes a 180. And she's left there with this compassionate rabbi who basically came to her rescue, saved her life. You see, when your life is touched by grace, it sets you free. It frees you from your sin debt. It frees you from the past and the power of guilt and shame. It frees you from judgment and fear. And it also frees you from the performance trap. 
I like what Jerry Bridges says in his book, Transforming Grace. He said, living by grace instead of by works means you are free from the performance treadmill. It means God has already given you an A when you deserved an F. He has already given you a full day's pay even though you may have only worked for an hour. It means you don't have to perform certain spiritual disciplines to earn God's approval. Jesus Christ has already done that for you. You are loved and accepted by God through the merit of Jesus, and you are blessed by God through the merit of Jesus. Nothing you will ever do will cause him to love you any more or any less. He loves you strictly by the grace given to you through Jesus. I think that's powerful. So God's grace first sets us free, but God's grace also changes our hearts. Changes your heart. And again, if you look to the Gospels, perhaps one of the greatest pictures of that is Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, as you know. And Jesus was coming into town one day, and, and he wanted to get a glimpse of him. So he ran on ahead, and he climbs up a sycamore tree so he can get a good bird's eye view of Jesus as Jesus is coming into town. And when Jesus gets to where Zacchaeus was, he stops, and he looks up, and he says, like, Zacchaeus, hey, I want to eat at your house tonight. I mean, can you imagine what he must have felt like? Zacchaeus just wanted to see Jesus, and Jesus stops and talks to him and even calls him by name and then says, hey, I'd like to eat dinner with you at your house. And so he hurries on down, and he makes the preparations, and you begin to see the transformation that occurs in his heart. Listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. It says, and when they saw it, that is the, the Pharisees, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You see, having been touched by the grace of God, it transforms Zacchaeus' heart. His heart was changed, and as a result of that, his actions changed. His actions followed his beliefs. He wasn't trying to earn or merit God's grace. He was responding to it. When you understand what you deserve for your sin and realize what God has done for you at the cross. You can't help but respond in humble gratitude, in adoration, in worship, and in praise. Your life can't help but change. It motivates you to do what is right and to extend grace to others. That's exactly what Zacchaeus did. 
Zacchaeus became a blessing to others. As he received grace, he extended grace to others. So grace changes your heart. But grace also heals relationships. I thought it would be good to maybe go back to the Old Testament, give you an illustration from the Old Testament. I I can't think of one better than that of Joseph and his brothers. Most of you are probably familiar with Joseph's story. Joseph was an amazing man. If anyone deserved to be angry, hateful, vengeful, unforgiving, it was Joseph. Why? Because his brothers wanted to kill him. Fortunately, instead of killing him, they decided to sell him to the Ishmaelites. They threw him into a pit, then they sold him into slavery. And a little bit later in his life, he actually does a stint in prison. Joseph does not have the ideal uh, of life as a teenager and as a young man. He suffered greatly. But despite the fact that his brothers threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery and, and spent that time in prison, somehow, somehow he is able to show love and grace to his brothers. Because once he got out of prison, God elevated him to be second in command of all of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. Listen to what Moses tells us in Genesis chapter 45. It says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 13. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. What an amazing story of grace. I I wonder how I would have responded if I was in Joseph's shoes. And I don't think I would have responded as well. I I would hope and pray that God would do in my heart what obviously he did in Joseph's heart because that would have been the only way I could have said those words to brothers if I had any. But Joseph knew that he was chosen by God that he was appointed for this very thing to bring salvation to his people and to so many others. You see, God's grace removes the poison of anger and hatred and bitterness and resentment and it eliminates the need for revenge and retribution. So let me ask you, who do you need to extend grace to? Who is it that's in your life that has hurt you so badly that feelings of anger and resentment and bitterness well up and keep you, keep you awake at night? 
you can choose to forgive. You can choose to extend grace to others. None of us deserve God's favor. All of us deserve the fires of hell. We, we have to understand that truth if we are to appreciate God's grace in our lives. Because God didn't choose us because we were so holy and so noble and so righteous. The scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a single exception. And the wages of that sin is death. But this is where God's grace comes in. Jesus, rather than giving us what we deserve, gave us something that we don't deserve, namely salvation. He took our sins upon himself. He bore them in his body on the cross and he died shedding his blood so that he could extend grace to us. So that he could forgive us of our sins and welcome us into his kingdom and into his heaven. God's grace heals our relationship with God, but it also heals our relationships with one another. Fourth thing I want to share with you about God's transforming grace is that grace strengthens and matures us in the faith. And going back to the Apostle Paul, I, I think about the story that, that he told uh, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about receiving a thorn in the flesh. Um, he, he, he shares the story and he says, you know, that, that I, I, I was caught up into the third heaven. He says, and I don't know if it was in the body, out of the body, but I was there and it was amazing. It was awesome. It was incredible. But to keep me from becoming conceited or puffed up because of this vision that God had given me, I was also given a thorn in the flesh. And scholars debate whether it was a physical ailment or a spiritual opposition or whatever, but clearly whatever it was, it was unpleasant and it was uncomfortable and it kept Paul humble and dependent upon God. And listen to what he says about God's grace here in verse 9. But he, that is God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, God's grace is more than sufficient. It's more than sufficient to sustain us in difficulty and to strengthen us in our weaknesses. And Paul says, I would gladly have God's grace in my life to give me that kind of strength because when I'm weak, oh boy, that's when I'm really, truly strong. We can't live the Christian life in our own strength. I love what Paul wrote to Timothy 
He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We need God's grace in our lives so that his power may be made manifest in us. God's grace strengthens us and builds us up in our faith and it enables us to grow and mature. That's why Luke wrote in Acts 20, and now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And then Peter says in 2 Peter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, you see, grace is not a one-time transaction. We're to grow in grace. It's an ongoing thing that we do. Fifth thing, grace trains us to live righteously. In his little epistle to Titus, he, re- he writes, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that? God's grace trains us to live righteously. And I'd like to go back for just a moment to, to the woman that Jesus had encountered earlier. You know, Jesus didn't simply say to the adulterous woman, hey, where are your accusers? Um, is there no one to condemn you? Neither do I. Go in peace. Have fun. Go back to your life of sin. I mean, some, some people feel that that's what grace does. Paul says, shall we sin so that grace may abound? May it never be, he says. Well, Jesus wasn't giving her an excuse to go back to her old lifestyle. See, I left something out when I told you that story. The very last thing that Jesus said to her was, go and sin no more. See, grace is not an excuse to sin. Grace gives us reason not to sin. And more than that, it gives us the power to not sin. I like what John Piper said about it. He said that grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. The last thing I want to share with you about the transforming power of grace is that grace empowers us for good works. In 2 Corinthians 9, we read, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then if we go back to Ephesians 2, that great chapter about grace. Earlier I quoted Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved by faith, through faith, that it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. This is the next verse. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. But I do know this, that it is possible to be in a worship service, hear about the grace of God, even sing about the grace of God, and never have experienced it personally. That was me, first 21 years of my life. That was many of you for a good portion of your life. If that is you this morning, if you do not know without a shadow of a doubt that you are saved, that you are born again, born again, that you have repented of your sins and you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, trusting in Him and in Him alone to save you from your sin, then I urge you to receive the grace of God this morning. Even for those that are watching online, you can get down right there at your bed or in your chair and you can pray to God. You can tell Him what He already knows, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you can't save yourself and that you need Him to apply His blood that was shed on the cross for you. Receive God's grace this morning. For those of you who have received God's grace in Christ, I, I want to remind you that, that you are kept by God's grace. Don't for a minute think that you can add anything to what God has already done for you. You have to keep trusting, keep adhering to Jesus, keep clinging to him. And the reality is, is that you are in the palm of his hand and he will not let you go. That's the beautiful thing. It's not really up to us. But as we continue to think about God's great love for us and what he has done for us, it changes our hearts. It makes us more like Jesus. You see, grace is an amazing thing. It is the church's great distinctive. It is the one thing that the world can't duplicate and it craves because it lives in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It knows nothing of grace. It craves it above all else because only grace can bring hope and transformation to a fallen world. I love what John Newton said about grace. He said, grace has brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. God's grace is sufficient. It saves, it sustains, it transforms. And because we are recipients of God's grace, we can extend that very same grace to others. I think Dallas Willard was right when he said, saints burn far more grace than sinners ever could. We burn grace like a jet burns fuel. For God's grace empowers us for good works, trains us to live righteously, strengthens and matures us in the faith, heals broken relationships, changes our hearts, and sets us free. Grace transforms. And that should, admit, should amaze us all.
May the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory, himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would set us aflame. We want to be on fire for Christ. Pour out your grace on us and conform us to the image of your Son. As your grace flows through us and in us, may we extend it to all those that we come in contact with. And may there be many more lovers of Jesus in your kingdom as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.